Welcome to the Fire Inside podcast, a weekly show about the astonishing true stories of hidden heroes, everyday people like you and me, who persevered to overcome extraordinary challenges. I'm your host, Sarada. In today's episode, we go to Malibu, California to talk to Amy Ralston, the founder of the Can Do Foundation, a nonprofit that fights for the release of nonviolent drug offenders from prison. I met Amy when I was developing a documentary series about the formerly incarcerated and their assimilation into society. Her background as a model and actress from a small town had me intrigued. Like, how did she get here? When the feds showed up at her door, Amy was shocked to learn that her husband was building a drug empire right under her nose. Not only that, but she was being charged with conspiracy. And just like that, Amy was thrown into a foreign world. In order to survive, she had to educate herself and craft her own way out of prison. How do you navigate a system you know nothing about? Where do you even begin to find answers when nothing around you is familiar? Let's talk to Amy and see how she guided herself out of her dilemma and into a path of helping others. You're listening to The Fire Inside. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited that you agreed to share your story. I remember for me, the jarring part of your story was that you were blindsided. Correct. Let's get into that. Tell me about the day the feds ransacked your home. I pulled into my garage uh, in the Hollywood Hills and two men wearing blue jeans. This was not SWAT back then, especially, but they were just plain clothes. Men ran at my car with guns drawn and was screaming at me, uh, saying, first of all, it was like, hands up. I was in a convertible. I don't know whether the top was down or not. And it was sort of dangerously contradictory because it was guns pointed at me and screaming, hands up, but then also don't move. So mm. I was flanked and... They kind of pulled me out of the car, and only a week or so before this, a woman who lived in the same neighborhood as I did was accosted uh, by somebody who followed her into the garage and then sort of pistol whipped her for her purse and pocket change, her, her wallet. So I thought that's what was happening to me, but instead, it turned out to be federal agents from Texas, full cowboy boots, and some of them are wearing cowboy hats. And I was, you know, flanked again, and then taken into the back door of my home, only to witness my entire house was being ransacked by, I, I don't, something like 10 to 12 different agents. And then I think a couple of local police officers that were in uniform were there as well. 
but it was rather ghoulish because unlike the a murder scene or a typical investigation where a crime has occurred, like we normally witness on TV with yellow tape and very meticulous, methodic sort of actions being taken on behalf of law enforcement. This was quite the opposite. There, they were pulling out my drawers in the kitchen. All of my food from the refrigerator was in the floor. Um, there was a. It was so loud and like clanging noises as silverware and stuff like that fell into the floor and accompanied by laughter as if it was funny. And that's when I immediately knew I was surrounded by what I would refer to as evil. I I just don't have another word for it. And I'm not trying to bash some of the wonderful people in law enforcement, but these drug investigations, especially back then, are just so different from the impression that I grew up with the way law enforcement should operate. I was very quickly realized I was in an atmosphere that was very foreign to me. It was very scary. I was escorted through my kitchen, past the dining room and into the living room. And my house was upside down which sounds comical, but everything was literally upside down. Like the couch was upside down, chairs were upside down. So I remember somebody grabbing a chair um, and putting it upright. It was an upholstered green, emerald green chair, I'll never forget. And so I was told to sit down and then there was a lot of hollering I was told that I was in hot water and somebody was kind of screaming at me. And um, so insane, the details we remember of traumatic moments. Yeah, I know. I can watch a movie and be halfway through it and then realize I've seen it before. But you just don't ever forget something so vivid as this. Mm -hmm. And so then what happened was the good guy, bad guy routine where the more handsome guy, he was kind of tall and blonde, sort of hollered at everybody else and it's like, back up, back up, you know, leave her alone. And I didn't realize it was that routine, but in hindsight, I would refer to it as that Mm -hmm. uh, because he knelt down beside me and I remember sort of being repulsed because he, he put his hand on my knee, he touched my knee and said that, you know, look, we're the good guys. And he kept referring to himself and, and, and the rest as, you know, we're your friends. And he would use the term friends. And so my friends were destroying my home. My friends had entered my sanctuary where everyone is supposed to feel safe and were laughing while they were literally breaking glass. Um, I saw a picture on the floor and, and it was broken. And I, I just remember I couldn't deal with the people and what was going on. So I just looked at the space between my feet. I just kept looking at the floor because you're trying to block it out. And so very quickly, just to wrap this section up, because it can be a very long story. He said that I'm at the center of a large drug conspiracy case involving MDMA and that they knew that I had visited my husband 
even though we were estranged and separated in Germany. And they said that he's the bad guy and they know it. And you know that he's the bad guy. And they just kept wanting me to respond. They kept wanting me to acknowledge certain things that they were saying. And I was just frozen. I, the, the door to my house was in the floor. So when I was escorted through my house, I remember looking over and seeing there was just a hole in my house where the door used to be, the front door used to be. So my brain was stuck on that. That's insane. <laughs> I couldn't process. I couldn't keep up. I just shut down. I just shut down. I remember I had retained an attorney on a small fee because it's true. I had traveled to Germany. My husband, who I had separated from, had been arrested. I did go visit him and he did ask me to collect some money for him. He thought he was going to get bail and he was in trouble. He was a Stanford Law School graduate who owned several legitimate businesses. I had previously worked at one of those businesses, but he got involved with MDMA when it was still legal. And apparently he predicted it was going to become illegal. So he shielded me from knowing the big story, but I knew he could get MDMA. We, we did MDMA together. I've, I've done MDMA, which is a street drug referred to as ecstasy on several occasions. And I knew he could get certain quantities if he wanted. What I didn't know was that about the same time I met him, he was trying to set up a situation where he would manufacture it in foreign countries, uh, Guatemala, and then later Germany. So long story short, I did, I was guilty of running around and collecting some cash that was illicit proceeds. And I've never denied that. Some of it was in lock boxes. And I just remember walking out thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? I was just sort of blindly trying to help somebody that I still had feelings for and I cared about. And he was not being completely honest. He said he was going to get off. Don't worry. There's a misunderstanding. And um, it's supposed to have been legal to manufacture it in Germany. I don't think that's true, according to the investigation in Germany. But I did not know about the conspiracy law that had been enhanced for the Supreme Court, I think, in 88. So if you do one thing to further the conspiracy of what a group of people are doing, even if it's something very minor, like collecting money or giving somebody a car ride that's you maybe or maybe not know that they're doing a drug deal, you're guilty for everything that happens in that everybody in the conspiracy has done. So you may not even know you're doing something wrong, but you're responsible for all the drugs and all the activity from maybe a large organization of drug dealers. And that's how I found myself in this predicament. To know that that's something that, you know, you could go to prison for is something, like you said, like whether you're aware or not, to even be in a car where there could be drugs in it, even if you're not sure if there are, you don't know, you have no knowledge of it, and that could happen is just like, it's insane to me how easy it is to get caught up when you're not aware. Yeah, it's like a spider web um, and being, being caught in the conspiracy web. 
So the crazy thing was back then, even certain lawyers were not up to date with the changes in the law. I spoke to some attorneys. I even met with the famous attorney out of New York, William Kunstler. He's no longer alive. And I don't think, I don't think Kunstler was aware of the conspiracy statute being used and weaponized against people at the time because he didn't really believe me. And I went to the ACLU. Somebody told me to go to the ACLU. They said they'd never heard of anything like this where I was being pressured because after that day, and to back up a little bit, I did ask to call my attorney and they denied me that privilege. And I think most people in our country don't realize that we don't have most of our civil liberties or protections that we used to think that we had. They said, no, we're, we're not going to allow you to call your attorney. You could call one of your drug associates. And I, I never sold drugs. I was not a drug dealer. I had a business in Los Angeles and I was pretty successful called Primetime Promotions. And I was also working part-time for somebody who had the shutoff valve in the event that there's an earthquake. And that's a long side story, but I was working very hard when they busted into my home. And bottom line, I, I refused to cooperate. I would not talk to them, mostly because I was just in shock. And so for two years, almost two years, they harassed me in Los Angeles. They would follow me. They met with the people who hired me to do promotional work for them. And they would literally say, why are you doing business with this woman? She's in the middle of a big drug conspiracy investigation. And then I would lose those jobs. Do you think that they didn't believe you at all? Or do you think that they were trying to find something on you? I think they were suspicious. They knew that I had met with my estranged husband and they were looking for drug ledgers. And I know this because after I was indicted, yeah, they when they have to do a search and seizure, they have to attach probable cause to a search and seizure. And I think they thought because I had visited him and because I was collecting money that maybe I was more involved than I was and that they were going to hopefully find evidence of his drug dealing. And I don't think very many people had cooperated. This was a shock to the United States because Germany contacted the U.S. This isn't a situation where somebody got busted in the U.S. and started talking that was lower down the rung. My husband was the top of the food chain. He was, for lack of a better term, the, the kingpin of this organization. So when the U.S. was notified by Germany that they had somebody over there who they had arrested at the, it was a pharmaceutical plant. He was using a professional pharmaceutical plant to manufacture MDMA. It was called Unifarm. They needed somebody in the U.S. to start working with them. And I think I was probably the first person that they, they targeted. That's so interesting. Shock is like definitely the word I would use to describe all of that. Because also like, what were you supposed to think at that time? I mean, I mean, this is just so invasive the way that they not just ransacked your home, but your entire life and your friend groups. And 
at the time, I'm sure when you were saying that, like, you didn't really know what to say and weren't saying anything, I don't know how you would because I would be fully confused if I was you. Is that how you felt? Absolutely. And not only that, that same day that they were at my house, a friend of mine had followed me there in her car and they interrogated her and she was told she could leave. They probably told her to leave. And she was somewhat brave because she stuck her head into the hole in my house where the door used to be and said, I'm leaving. She said, and is there anything I can do? And back then, although we did have cell phones, some did, I I said to her, I said, would you please call my attorney? And I gave her the name and I don't know how, but she looked him up and my attorney showed up and I didn't know this, but the prosecutor was there on site. He never introduced himself or said that he was a prosecutor. And I've read case law where the prosecutor isn't normally supposed to be um, present for search and seizures like that, but he was there and my attorney got permission and, and came over to me and said, we're leaving. And I really didn't want to leave my house at the mercy of these folks because even back then there wasn't an internet, but I had a computer and I had my primetime business. And anyway, I, I, I was running a business. And so now uh, we left, we went to like a coffee shop and he sat me down and he explained the conspiracy law and he said, well, they weren't going, they did read me, they did Mirandaize me. The prosecutor told my attorney that. He goes, we're, we're really not that interested. We just, you know, we don't really believe she's a big participant, but we want her cooperation. She's valuable. So they, they told my attorney I was a, like a valuable asset. So my attorney said, look, they're going to want you to cooperate and that could require you wearing wires and infiltrating his organization because I don't think they had much to go on. And my husband at the time wasn't cooperating. He did later. So they wanted me to infiltrate and tell them whatever I knew. I remember at one time the agent even saying to me, because I, I just, again, I was just frozen. He said, you may not even know what you know. We just need you to tell us everybody that your husband was friends with and who he associated with. <laughs> I was just like, uh, I, I remember thinking to myself that I'm never going to talk to these people that are destroying my home. Right. Had you been in any legal trouble before this for anything ever? No, never, never. And in fact, I never even saw marijuana in the small town where I grew up, uh, Charleston, Arkansas, very wholesome. I went to Catholic school through sixth grade, very, very wholesome community, never saw drug activity. But when I moved to Dallas after one year college, I was modeling a little bit and that was the big cocaine era. And so I was introduced to rec what I would call recreational drugs, which is what George Bush Jr. referred to when he talked about his own drug use. Somehow it was recreational use at one point, and then Daddy Bush kicked in the drug war, and it was we were all the scourge of society. But I had tried cocaine. I had been exposed to drug use, so that wasn't abnormal to me. And then when somebody told me about ecstasy, I wasn't really interested at first, but I kept hearing about it. Little did I know that ecstasy actually became recreational in Dallas 
Texas first. I had a friend in New York and I asked her if she'd ever heard of it because I just assumed it was all over. Everybody knew about it. She said, no, I've never heard of it. And other people in other cities had not heard of it, but it it started um, through a friend of my husband, Michael Clegg, was the first person to take MDMA recreational. Some doctors had worked with it in Northern California in a medical sort of way. But on a recreational level, my husband was like the number two person to take it recreational in the nation. So I moved to California to actually get away from him. <laughs> he was a very interesting person. He introduced me to metaphysics and he, I kind of put him on a pedestal because I, my soul was hungry. And back then there wasn't a lot about reincarnation and metaphysics. And um, so I fell very much in love with him and his philosophy but he wasn't loyal. He cheated and he had a real Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Uh, just two drinks would change his personality drastically. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, wow. And I mean drastically. So um, after many promises to change and him begging me to stay, because I, I left him a, a few times. And I, I had a real tender heart because I, I loved him so much. He was like my first love. Definitely been there. <laughs> yeah. I realized in order to get out of the situation with him, I had to move, physically move. Definitely been there too. Yeah. So I had to change the narrative because whenever I would tell him I was leaving him, he could manipulate my heart and make promises. So I told him, I wanted to be a writer, and I literally wrote a treatment for a film called Nothing's Black and White, and I said that, you know, I just, I have to move to Los Angeles to pursue my dreams. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and did he follow you? Yeah, he did. He would pop in. I mean, he would actually even pop in with flowers and just say that, you know, he'd gone to see his parents and was, you know, and just happened to be out there. <laughs> And I always said, you know, we can be friends. Let's just be friends. And I, that's where I think I messed up. I never, I, I really needed to get away from this man and cut him completely out of my life like you do a cancer tumor. But I kept saying, let's just be friends. And that gave him hope, I guess, because he eventually rented a house in Los Angeles and I flogged back like a, you know, an addicted person to a crack pipe. And was there for him when he was arrested in Germany. And I found myself literally running around, like doing things that I, I should not have done because I just felt like, oh my God, he's in a really bad situation. I was too young and I, I did not confide in my parents. I wasn't getting any advice from anyone because I don't, I wish young people knew that when you're in a bad situation in a marital or, or even a relationship, you really have to reach out to someone you trust and talk to them about what's going on. True. But I didn't want my parents to not like him. So you hide all that. Because you're in love with somebody and, oh, I'm getting a little weepy. It's, it's such a, it's, you just feel so trapped and then you hold all that inside and young people really need to know when somebody is abusing you or being abusive, you have to speak to somebody, even if you find a therapist or a 
some relative that can give you some guidance and strength because I should have filed for a divorce. Just to add this for you real quick, like I can totally empathize with that. And I think a lot of people that listen to you say that can too, because it's not just about wanting to protect that person as much as it is sometimes you want to trust your own instincts at the same time. You want to trust your own feelings. And sometimes it takes a while to even recognize what is abuse. Or sometimes it takes a while to even recognize, you know, like, hey, I know this is bad, but maybe it's just temporary. Maybe he's just stressed out. Or maybe, you know what I mean? I think we make excuses. I think it takes a moment sometimes to recognize what's real and what's not because we are in love. And there is so much amazingness sprinkled in. So I'd give yourself a little credit for that because it's hard to recognize it. But once you do, I agree. It's like, speak up because that's the only way that you can get support and get help to get out. Correct. And to wrap up my story, I went to trial and I kind of knew by then that I knew the laws, they were explained to me, I understood it, but I just would not take a a plea agreement. And I've, I've spoken at many, many universities, including Yale and Pepperdine and Vanderbilt and Washington State and NYU on a panel with other formerly incarcerated women. And I always focus on the conspiracy law since that's sort of my wheelhouse. So I knew that I was going to, I was facing 20 to life and that I was going to get 20 to life because of the conspiracy statute. But even then I wouldn't take a plea. And I've had a lot of students ask me, why wouldn't you just cooperate? So that's when I have to explain that cooperation doesn't mean confession. And that sounds like all I had to do was confess my role. If you look up substantial assistance in a legal definition is you have to assist the Department of Justice in the conviction of additional people. You can't just confess. Once you enter into a plea agreement, the pressure is on you to set up other people, and then you have to testify against them to be able to get the fruit of your cooperation in the form of a sentence reduction. And that was explained to me. And once I understood it, I it's really not about my my ex and I just wasn't going to sell my soul and do to others what was being done to me. I did receive 24 years and five months. I served nine years and three months. Can you tell me a little bit about your time in prison? Yeah, that was sure something that it was, it just wasn't the image that I expected. I went to what is referred to as a medium security prison. There's camps, medium security, and then a penitentiary. Mm-hmm. A lot of people on TV shows refer to prison as a penitentiary. It's not. Penitentiary is for the worst of the worst, and you're really behind immense security, if not almost like inside all the time with maybe you know a cement place to play basketball or something like that for for men but women a medium facility I was I was in shock when I got there because I don't know what I thought I thought maybe I would be in a cell and for some crazy reason I thought I would have access to like a a laptop or something and be (laughs) be able to work on a computer or something but it sort of on the one hand if you're on the compound and it was in Dublin, California, so the weather was nice. There's parts of it that looked like a college campus, but it's surrounded by this two 
fences that have razor wire, so much razor wire, your mind can't process it because there's razor wire at the bottom and then there's a line for any kind of sensor of movement. Then there's two cyclones of razor wire on the top of that fence. And then there's another fence which has the cyclone razor wire bottom and top again. And then there's a truck a perimeter truck that slowly circles the compound, which you always see. So no chance of escaping, basically. Oh, it's just, I, like, if you find yourself in a county jail, and especially Waco, Texas, you're sort of at the bottom of the totem pole of life. Yikes. And so when I was calling my parents from Waco, I was always, like, trying to cheer them up and giving them assurances and, and just letting them know I'm going to be okay. And I remember when I got to the compound in Dublin and there was a whole huge bus of us. And even the women in Dublin was like, what is going on out there? We've never seen such an influx of people coming in and buses like 20, 30 at a time. Maybe there'd be two or three new commits before this drug war kicked in. I called my parents and I wasn't even expecting that I was going to fall apart. And I just felt terrible because I, I always tried to not put them in a position where it was harder on them than it already was because so traumatic for the family members. And um, I remember calling them. And so they were, I think, expecting kind of a call like any other call. And I remember I started crying. And then my mom said, what's the matter? And I just kind of blurted out. I said, you know, I just was like, I just blurted out real loud. I'm in prison. But it was, you know, it was the way I said it. Mm. It was almost kind of like a scream for help. And I just wished I hadn't, you know, I lost it because your family doesn't really, you know, they're innocent victims in all of this. They haven't done anything wrong. Their life is shattered and they can't really see. So they don't know really what you're going through or what they're, you know, you just have images on TV to go by. And um, I remember when I entered the compound, the guards will tell you, don't trust other inmates. Don't let them give you shampoo or anything. They're going to expect a favor from you. They're going to blow. So you're just so scared and paranoid. And that's not true because then when I was there, it's sort of, there's almost a welcoming committee where women really do kind of look out for other women. It's not the way it's depicted. There's always a few bad apples, of course, um, and you quickly learn who they are. But for the most part, people are just trying to just, we're all in this together and it's an awful situation. So what was adjustment like there? Were you able to adjust pretty quickly and then stay focused? Or was there ever a moment where you were like, I don't know if I can do this anymore? I never adjusted to being there. Never, never. My only goal was to come home. So I was always in the law library. I don't know how to explain it. You you come up with your routine so that your routine works for you. But I can honestly say that there is something so unnatural about losing your freedom. And nobody really understands until you've lost it. What a weight that is on your chest. It's a, it's like a gorilla on your chest. Every There were days when you, you literally have to do a, where you get the, the pressure is so deep. 
inside of you that you wonder, you know, we would sit around and talk, those of us who had 20 to life, and uh, we would we would ask one another, you know, like, gosh, we were always living on hope. There'd be new legislation or something would come down the pike, and it keeps you going. And I knew about clemency, and I knew Clinton when he was elected. I, I knew there was maybe a chance for Arkansas, because so, it's a small state. And so I was going to exhaust my appeals, and I knew I was going to go for clemency. And I had a plan A, B, and C. I was either going to get out legally, I was going to try to escape, or I was going to kill myself. (laughs) Wow. Those are all heavy decisions. First of all, you can't escape. Yeah, uh, there's no way to escape. You can't escape. You can tell that you considered it, though, because you know the exact landscape. (laughs) Right. You fantasize about it. I mean, yeah, you, a normal person, you know, you, you you literally have these visions of a helicopter coming, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's not realistic. Did you ever lose hope, though? No. And a lot of people, especially out here, and I, I work in the criminal justice reform space, and especially a lot of people who have never been to prison will say, well, you know, we're working on so-and-so's case, but, you know, we don't want to get their hopes up. Right. And... I can't speak for everyone because everyone is different, but I normally tell people hope is the only thing that keeps us going. And usually hope will kick your ass. There's no doubt about it. Faith, I think, plays heavier than hope and faith kind of work hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But by the time I lost my appeal and you get battered around and uh, stuff like that, you, you just learn to compartmentalize. And I always tell people out here, I was just like, you know what, we're, we get pretty resilient in there. We're pretty strong after we've been through all of this. So yeah, hope can add additional heartache, but I never, ever, ever gave up. I, I was in the law library. Everybody on the compound sort of thought I was crazy, even the staff. Nobody had really heard of the term clemency back then. Mm-hmm. Now it's sort of well known. Tell me a little bit more about that for anyone who doesn't actually know about clemency or what that really means. It's your last resort. It's a Hail Mary. Once you've exhausted your appeals, you can file a clemency petition to the Office of the Pardon Attorney. They are part of the Department of Justice. You are no longer litigating You are no longer trying to argue the particulars of your case. And in fact, if you do, you're on the fast track to a denial. The Office of the Pardon Attorney, they want to hear remorse and they want to know accountability. So anyway, after I got out of clemency from President Clinton on July 7th, 2000, I knew I needed to help try to bring home some of my friends. I'd even written a clemency petition for my bunkie, who was an Asian lady who got 17 and a half years for merely passing on a phone message. And before Clinton left office, I got my roommate out. And I thought I had sort of magically found the components to be able to help other people get clemency which was get them some media exposure and get their case sort of out there and get some politicians behind it, which is, I think I had 16 politicians write support letters for my clemency after the Glamour magazine featured my story in 98, I think it was. And that 
helped me immensely because two senators in Arkansas and Clinton happened to know the senator from my little bitty small hometown of Charleston, Arkansas. They took my case directly to President Clinton, um, if not for the alignment of the stars and, you know, like a one in a trillion odds of that happening, I received clemency and then started the Can Do Foundation in 2004 to help first women who are in my situation. And now we help everybody, marijuana cases, men, women, anybody who's typically serving 20 to life, but we make exceptions. I have some cases that are serving 10 years to come home through the clemency process. Oh, that's wonderful. Because, you know, it would be easy to just walk away. Exactly. Want to walk away, want to not be seen, just continue to focus on yourself and your life because you've missed so much of it. Well, and a lot of people do. Um, I had sort of a unique situation where I went and when I got out, I lived with my parents for the first six months because they won't let you travel. Probation sticks when your sentence is commuted. So you're still under probation, as people should be. You know, I, I think it's okay to monitor people who've just gotten out of prison. Sure. So six months uh, later, my probation officer said I could travel back to L.A., which is where I was living at the time, and that's where my friends were. And I visited, like, my best friend who lived in Malibu and... So I ended, well, I don't want to get into this, but I've found myself into a situation where I could have the luxury of time to devote to the can-do, whereas most people who come home, you're just trying to get on your feet. You're working like crazy to just pay your bills. Now, the Can-Do Foundation, is, it's kind of grown past its its limitations because we don't charge anybody and we don't have time to try to get grant money and apply for all those things. So sometimes people will give us a small donation, but we, we've worked with the Obama administration. We went to the Obama White House three times. I also worked with the Trump administration. He was actually really good on criminal justice reform and was willing to listen to a lot of us about the First Step Act and passed legislation that has brought a lot of people home through compassionate releases and the disparity in the crack cocaine law. And so we helped almost 100, let me see, I think around 80 people during the Obama administration that were on our website came home during the Obama administration. And then uh, with the clemency directly with the Trump administration. And we got quite a few people home through his administration as well. And we're still waiting to see what Biden's going to do. He's done a few things, but we're still waiting on the Biden administration to do something a little bit more meaningful. You've been out for 23 years. Do you have any PTSD from any of this, either your prison time or even just anything leading up into it? Absolutely. (laughs) PTSD is real. It's a real thing. And I think for me, more than being arrested, it's about betrayal. And I recently went through something again where there was a betrayal and it just, it knocks you out. It just knocks you down. And then it brings back, you know, the betrayal of my first husband cooperating. And uh, I don't believe anything he says, but he would write letters and tell me that he cut a deal, but they they were supposed to leave me alone. And 
I don't believe him. I just think he did whatever he needed to do. And um, so for somebody that you love to do that, and I really, he reached out to me for help to help himself. Then he turned on me and others to also help himself. And I was just running around trying to help. I wasn't trying to be a drug dealer or wreak harm on others. So maybe because I don't really have that guilty conscience, I I did wrong. I'm not going to say I didn't, but betrayal of a friend. I've had situations where everybody goes through this, but it, it hits you harder when you've lost your freedom because of betrayal. So betrayal is a, is a horrible thing. And that really kicks in my PTSD when, and maybe sometimes I'm even suspicious that I may be betrayed by somebody. And so I'm very guarded. Yeah. I was just going to say, how do you trust again after that? It's not easy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of the most important things. And I spoke about this We co-hosted an event in D.C. at the Four Seasons and had the new pardon attorney, Liz Oyer, who's just delightful. She's a breath of fresh air. And so I was on a panel and I spoke about how women and men are really different and we need to be treated differently, even though there's equal protection under the law that would argue against that. But when a man goes to prison, he can come out at just about any age and still have a family if he wants. I lost the opportunity to have children. And I'm really dealing with the consequences now at 62 of being, my parents are dead. My brother is dead, who is my only sibling. So it's just me. I'm in a healthy relationship right now, but I don't have children. And I have a few cousins, but I don't have any, you know, direct relatives or like Easter just came and went and there's no big family get together. (laughs) And um, so we are very different. And although I got out at 40, My mother uh, wanted me to go to the doctor to see if we could freeze some of my eggs. And he said, even at 40, the odds are very much against me. And then try to go find somebody at that age who wants to start a family. And I know some people say you can adopt, but I wasn't stable after that. I wasn't in a situation. And then I fell in love with somebody who'd been fixed and already had a family. So he didn't want to start a new family. The consequences are much more dire on a woman than on a man, especially if you're far less participatory and you were the low-hanging fruit. The takeaway that the public needs to know is I didn't go to prison for dealing drugs or for really any illicit activity. I went to prison because I went to trial. They call it the trial penalty phase. And that means I refused to cooperate with a federal agency, with a federal, you know, with the Department of Justice. And my prosecutor said in the Glamour magazine article, he said, well, we wouldn't have indicted her if she just worked with us. (laughs) So as a woman, I understand why you did what you did. I know what you mean when you say, well, I knowingly, but not really knowingly did it, right? There's like what you knew is that you were helping out a friend, someone that you love and that you never thought would ever betray you, even if... You know, the way in which you were doing it was a little unorthodox or whatever, or even if you had instincts that might have told you it wasn't exactly what it was, you know, you chose to trust. One of the reasons I find your story so remarkable is exactly what you've done is 
Yes, there was a life that you wanted to have. There were things in this life that you wanted to have that you were robbed of. But then there were other things in this life that you had no idea that you'd be a part of and you stepped into it. You know, you let go of why is this happening to me? Why me? Why me? Why me? And you stepped into, let me find all the ways in which I can not only help myself, but help every other person around me. Yeah. And to be clear, although Bush Sr. campaigned on the drug war, And based on historic records, even the History Channel doing a piece on how he was the person handling the drug war during the Reagan administration, I heard them talking about how they were going to start going after drug lords. And I even was like, good, yeah, it's a great thing. So little did I know that the laws changed in a way that would let kingpins go free, because one thing we haven't said was that although my estranged husband, Served a little bit of time in Germany. That was for a completely separate case. He came back to the U.S., cooperated fully, and the MDMA that we were indicted for came from Guatemala, which was an operation that he set up first. And he got three months probation from the same judge that gave me 24 years. But I didn't know about the conspiracy law. And nobody in the media or even in D.C. were talking and educating the public, like, give us a warning. Let us know, hey, this is what the drug war is going to be like going forward if you do this. you know. So it's like a secret uh, mission that literally filled the federal prisons full of people who kind of unwittingly got involved in something, but but didn't understand the consequences. Yeah. And you know, the injustice of our system in general is like 17 podcasts in itself. There's, there's many layers. So many layers. Amy, do you have any idea how strong you are? Oh, gosh. I'm, t- you know, there's days because I'm carrying the weight of a lot of people serving life for pot that we're trying to help. Um, Pedro Marino is one. We're doing a little documentary short on his case. Um, student from University of Southern California is, is doing it. We're helping a little bit with the funding. And what is so hurtful in my heart is I talked to his daughter who just had another little baby and the whole family, four of his brothers received clemency through Obama, but somehow he got left behind. He's last man standing. Can you imagine five brothers and all of them getting life? And he was a first offender. He's now been in there, gosh, I think it's 23 years. So when you ask me how strong I am, I think there's times when it's really hard to carry the weight of these additional stories. And there are times there, I honestly must say that there are times where other people tell me, why don't you just go enjoy the rest of your life? You know, go hit the golf course or something. You've done enough. And then there's times when that sort of sounds appealing. And then I just, I'm so attached to some of these people and their stories and, and trying to, you know, give them hope and I'm disappointed that President Biden on the campaign trail, him and Kamala said that they would free the the cannabis prisoners if elected. And that still hasn't happened. And I feel a responsibility because when I was in, there weren't organizations out here for my parents to reach out to. 
and oh, you know, I just feel like we're serving a purpose. But there are a lot of new organizations. It's a whole different world. Criminal justice reform is a big space right now. But um, I just I can't. There's something about an obsession now where I just I can't walk away from people who who went through what I went through. And I don't know if you call it strength or I will say this. You don't really know who you are until you're tested. Mm -hmm. And some people, you know, kind of crap their pants and start talking. And uh, for me, you could have put a gun to my head and just blow my brains out because I wasn't going to work with these people Mm -hmm. that were destroying my home and laughing about it. I just was like, okay, (laughs) wrong approach. You just said you don't really know who you are until you're in a certain situation. So how has your perspective changed or what have you learned about who you are? Well, I'm kind of a a news junkie, although you can't really rely on the news. I mean, it's just so polarizing now. And you're like, are we living in the same country? But I do my own research. And this situation taught me that when you hear politicians saying something, like what was going on in the 80s, where they were going to ratchet up the drug war and they were going to go after anybody involved in the drug trade, you better pay attention to new bills and legislation that's being passed and also the synergism that happens when both the left and the right get on a campaign to out-tough one another. And that's what happened back in the 80s. The Dems were trying to out-tough the Republicans. The Republicans were trying to out-tough. And so I, I, I kind of am very wired in and I try to pay attention and I try to be a free thinker and I try to do my own homework. And I also engage. People need to engage with their congressman or their senator, even uh, depending on your situation with your with your governor, even though it's hard to reach those people. And we're supposed to have a voice in this country. And so my takeaway is that don't just sit back on your haunches and think that everything is going to be okay if you don't participate, even though I know some people, you know, they're just trying to make their mortgage payment and get their kids through school and everything. We're all part of uh, the result of legislation. So, And that you can make a change. So knowing the progression that your life has made and, and the direction it's gone in, looking back on it overall, would you change anything? That's, it's such a, a normal question to ask. And I went through phases. Looking back, I'd have to say, no, I wouldn't. When I was in prison, I had a pack with God going in. I was just like, okay, I know this is wrong. I'm not going to sell my soul. I know the difference between right and wrong and what they did to me. I would never want to do it to somebody else. And I'm just not, I'm not going to play this game. And I felt like God would have me. So nine years in, Mm -hmm. there were times when I was just like, I'll never forget. I read the diary of Anne Frank in prison. Mm -hmm. And when I closed that last page, I just, I just started crying because I was like, why do I think I'm special? Look at this beautiful soul. And, you know, she's still, she made it all the way almost to the very, very end of the, end of the war. And then 
still, she did not have her happy ending. I called myself quixotic when I was in prison, like the Don Quixote attitude, because I grew up with a fairy tale mentality that every movie had a happy ending. And I just knew I was going to have my happy ending. I would somehow win my appeal or I would, you know, God had me. And several years in, I started thinking, I'm just feeding myself a bunch of crap. I mean, am I twisted? Maybe I'm demented or something. (laughs) But when I would get in that and my heart would start racing and I was questioned, like, could I have possibly like worked with them and still not had to hurt other people in some way? I started questioning my logic if I could get out to the rec field and walk around dusk, everything in me would calm down. And it was almost like these little voices would come to me like, you're going to be okay. Here, we got you. We're going to be okay. And I would calm down. I mean, the other part too is that what you just said was basically hindsight 2020, right? That's like everybody has that feeling of like, man, if I knew this. But I know. the reason why I love so much that you said no is because at the end of the day, every single step led to the next thing. And it's like... Um, if I didn't go through what I went through, I wouldn't be where I am. And where I am might not have been where I thought I wanted to be in life, but it's obviously where I was meant to be because here's where you're thriving. I see you as someone that I consider one of my heroes, right? Because you, um, you know, were dealt hand after hand after hand that was unfavorable. And they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So you're like, Mm -hmm. all right, fine, let me find a way to keep moving. And it's just, it's resilience, it's perseverance, you know, it's acceptance of your situation and overcoming, you know, uh, the battles and challenges that were on your plate. And then letting go of all of the things that can have you stewing in that hatred and that anger and that depression to be able to rise into the purpose that was set for you. Thank you for sharing that. Anytime you can take a negative situation like what I went through and hopefully get turn turn it into something positive, then you feel like, okay, well, then, you know, that time and that experience is yielding results. I think a, a big takeaway here is for all of us to take a negative and do everything that we can to help others maybe realize that their bad behavior is is causing other people some terrible consequences. I know so many people have come home and are doing wonderful things. And right now, you know, crime is on the rise again. And I honestly don't like, I don't like some of the policies of some of the very liberal DAs in Los Angeles and San Francisco and some of these cities that are being too lenient on people. There could be a mental component or could be any number of things, poverty, whatever it is. We can't even get the pot prisoners out. I'm concerned that tough on crime policies are going to come back and hurt people like myself who never set out to injure anyone. We need balance. We definitely need accountability. We shouldn't reward people who run over people and with a, a vehicle or, or do bad things. But we, we've got to find a middle road here where we don't have people serving life for pot in prison. And yet the public needs to be kept safe. I completely agree. I appreciate you. I appreciate your fight. 
I more than appreciate you, well, thank you. and your vulnerability as well and sharing everything that you did. Well, I appreciate you too. Even though we live with our traumas and our conflicts and our challenges, it's like talking about them, reliving them, no matter how long it's been, is never easy. It's like we don't love that these things have happened, that this betrayal, that this abandonment or whatever it is that you're facing, this abuse, this trauma has happened. Um, but right. we are doing the best that we can to give ourselves fulfillment. And I think that's what I heard the most when you were talking about, you know, your rise in general, when, you know, you're like, I'm just a little obsessed with it at this point. It's like, all I hear is fulfillment. This is your fulfillment. It's naturally inside of you at this point. You went through it yourself with very little information. So you want to make sure that everyone around you has as much information as possible to succeed. Because information is invaluable. Absolutely. And in that regard, when you say, would I do anything different? If I'd had information, yeah, I would have never gotten involved. So I have a regret that I got involved. I'd already left this person and I begged him to please move on with his life. That's true. And that's the only thing I would have done different. But when it came to the test, which is, am I going to sell my soul or not? I, I think I clearly made the right decision and God did reward me or somebody did. And here I am. Thank you for breathing life into us today by sharing your perspective. You're welcome. I really appreciate you. Amy's actions combined with the political climate led her into a frightening and foreign world that she never expected to be a part of. She lost nearly 20 years of her life and the opportunity to build the family and career she dreamed of. But she never lost her resolve to fight injustice in the form of bureaucracy. I imagine that nothing will radicalize you more quickly than going to prison, especially if you don't believe you belong there. Instead of growing bitter and vengeful, Amy sought refuge in learning the very system that put her behind bars. But the most impressive part is that she's doing the same thing for others. Her organization, Can Do, doesn't absolve people from the crimes they commit, but it does seek justice through clemency for those crimes. So my final question is this. When was the last time you stood strong for something you believed in? Let's keep the conversation going. Follow us on socials at Fire Inside Show. Until next time. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Fire Inside, hosted by me, Sarada. Today's episode was produced by Andrea Johnson, edited by Chris Stout, music by Jim Gaynor, and mixed and mastered by Martin Stebbing. That's the dream team. And if you like what you've heard, be sure to leave a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode.